This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. It happened again last week. I was driving down my dirt road, the part where there are no houses, just forest and scrub, and this little grouse was standing in the road. It's kind of the color of a dirt road dappled in sunlight, so I actually didn't see it until I got right up close, and then I had to lean on the brakes. Now, you expect a bird to screech away when this big hulk of metal comes hurtling towards it, but not this grouse. This thing just struts around. I can't tell if it's curious, or maybe it wants to fight the car, or mate with it. But this happens every year around this time when so many of our birds are out and about enjoying the spring weather just like we are or returning from a winter in warmer climes. The spring migration brings more than just birds to our backyards, though. It also brings Bridget Butler to our studio. Bridget Butler is known around these parts as the bird diva, and she joins us each spring to share some of her exciting bird news and to answer all kinds of questions from the likes of you and me. We've been getting great questions all weekend and all morning. Bridget Butler, welcome back to the program. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Jane. So what is happening with this grouse? I mean, I love it because you get a great chance to observe how it sort of struts around and what it looks like, but I can't tell why it's not afraid of this car that is so many thousands of pounds more heavy than it is. And, you know, what's it doing? What does it want? How can I help? Yeah, how can you help? Um, Stop driving. No, that's (laughs) not going to work. So this is what I love about a lot of birds during this time of year is they get brave and bold and saucy. And it's all because it's, it's the mating season. So right now, this is most likely a male bird, and you are driving through its territory. And so you're a threat. <laughs> you're threatening this bird's <laughs> productivity, Jane. Um, and so it's a lot of machismo, right? Like, mm-hmm. so he's he's checking you out. He's maybe seeing his reflection, especially well, dirt road, clean car. Those two hey. don't really go together, right? Yeah. So maybe it's not the reflective quality. But <laughs> you know, you're coming through that territory that that male has established. And I've I get a lot of really great grouse stories. Some of them not so great because on the flip side of this. So this is probably the male um, responding to you moving through the area. I've heard of people on four-wheelers out in the sugar bush at the end of the year, you know, picking up equipment and things, having getting run down by grouse. Hmm. Um, and Actually, then, let me read you yeah. this question that we also got. A listener uh, emailed in and, and said, for the last five days, we've noticed a roughed grouse who's taken up residence in the brush near our house. When we walk to the mailbox, it comes out of hiding and follows us. Yep. When my husband's car pulls out of the garage, it runs out and follows us up the drive. It comes right up to us without hesitation. This isn't, I gather, typical grouse behavior. Do you have any ideas of what might be happening? Well, it sounds, Bridget, like it is yeah, kind of typical. So it's it's not it's rare to have this kind of experience, but it's not unusual. So again, it's that male, his territory area, he's set it up. If you've got a brush pile, that's awesome, right? Great cover for a lot of different types of birds, including grouse. Um, and so they're just defending their territory. And females will do the same thing too. So if you later on, as they're sitting on eggs or they've got young that they're trying to keep undercover, um, some grouse are known to do that kind of, I've got a broken wing display Mm -hmm. to try to get you to come away. And I've even heard of hikers being attacked by female grouse because you just stay in the same place a little bit too long. And that female's like, you're a threat. I'm going to get rid of the threat Mm -hmm. somehow. 
And so the the four wheelers and stuff in the sugar bush, you know, they do they mow them down by mistake, or is it just no, they, pe- no. people get a little bit attacked by them? They so yeah. So the the grouse come out. What's what's really cool too about grouse is that the drumming sound that yeah. the males make. I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm going to pop the microphone down a little bit lower, and so it's a thumping sound. And some people say it sounds like a lawnmower starting. Mm-hmm. So it starts. So your lawnmower, your heaven forbid leaf blower, um, you know chainsaw, those those motorized tools that we use when they start up, they may sound from a distance another male on a territory like another grouse. So that guy's gonna come and check you out, make sure you're not a threat. Which is good. I mean, it's yeah. great you get to observe them. You just need to maybe yeah. run a little faster and to the garage. And slow down, right, too. That's the other thing with roadways right now. A lot of animals are moving back and forth, um, kind of exploring their territory, expanding their territory. Um, and those hormones are working. So they're not always making the <laughs> best choices. We know what that's like. And so if we slow down, especially on some of our back dirt roads, we'll have less collisions with some of those birds. Lynette is calling in from Greensboro Bend. Hi, Lynette. Go right ahead. Hi. Um, Your grouse uh, talk reminded me of my friend Gregory Grouse, who used to uh, come out onto a stone wall across the street from my house, and every morning when I turned my Omni on, he'd start thrumping. I guess the car must have sounded like a female grouse or else a competitor, and he would chase me up the road. Ah, Did you enjoy it, Lynette? (laughs) Oh. Gregory? I loved Gregory. (laughs) But I also wanted to mention yesterday we went for a um, hike up on Bar Hill and we saw several pairs of kestrels. Nice. And we saw, well, we we scared a lot of grouse while we were walking around. But the best thing was we kept hearing this strange, strange sound and we knew we were near uh, wetness. So we went around some bushes and saw a pair of mallards and then all of a sudden saw this pond popping like popcorn and I guess it was a frog orgy. There you go. (laughs) And boy did those mallards look fat and happy. So I love this story. I had the same experience once on a um, a pond up near Jay Peak when I was uh, a ski instructor up there. And I, you know, it was the end of the season and um, I was in between jobs and being able to hike and enjoy my time outside and came upon a pond that I thought for sure was full of ducks. Right. Because it just it was so loud. And I thought this is so strange for them to be so loud right now. I wonder if there's a predator coming through and went through the bush. Wouldn't you know, it's it's just wood frogs totally covering the pond. So those guys do have a kind of quacking, clucking like sound um, that can sound awfully bird like. Well, Lynette Shirley had a great spring oh hike yesterday. Goodness. What an what an awesome hike. And Bridget, I mean, the hawks come back and you see them all of a sudden and there they are and you see the turkey vultures one day and they are back. But yes. I have to say this year for me, and I, I know that we've talked about this before, that often the things you see are just what happen to be in your neighborhood and are right. not r- reflective of what's happening out in the world at large. But man, oh man, have I seen a lot of hawks this year, especially red-tailed hawks. They are 
everywhere all everywhere. of a sudden. So I think the other thing that you can start to kind of try to pair that up with in your head is what the the weather pattern has been like, and especially snow cover. So this year we also had, a, unfortunately, we had a lot of owl car collisions. And so some of the wildlife rehabbers were a little bit overwhelmed with um, owls that had sustained injuries this year. And so I noticed that too. Same thing, lots of hawks. Um, I did a talk down um, in Manchester this year, and man, I stopped counting red tails because it was just, there were just so many of them. But I think when you get that deep, heavy snow cover, it pushes some of these raptors to the edges more. And some of those edges are along roadways. Roadways sometimes are a great place to hunt. There's a risk involved, but it's also a spot where small rodents are going to be dashing out on an on a open surface that you can grab from easily. Yeah, I have seen some pretty amazing turkey vultures that have been scavenging mm. a porcupine carcass down at the end of my road. And, you know, it's really cool to see those birds up close, too. They are fabulous. And looking. they're huge. They are they're enormous. Huge. They're yeah. as big as an eagle. And so it's just kind of intense to then see them on the ground because you don't understand that perspective of size when they're up in the air above you. And you don't see the resemblance to turkeys until you see them on the ground and then you think, oh, I get it now. Yeah. And that big, bare, ugly head, right? <laughs> I love it. I love seeing them. Barbara is calling in from Guilford. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Jane. Hi, Bridget. Hey. Um, my question is, are uh, the hummingbirds close? Because I've got my feeders out today, and I'm just anticipating their arrival. Awesome. <laughs> Barbara's ready. I know. Go. Um, yes, they are. And you know what's amazing? Probably about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, um, a friend of mine, um, Dave, in uh, St. Albans City, and he's up on the, the hillside there between um, St. Albans and, what is it, Fairfield. Um, he had one at his feeder, which I thought was incredibly kind of early-ish. Wow. Okay. And so for me, when I'm like, when I'm curious about whether things are back or not um, or leaving, um, I go to eBird. I go to Vermont eBird and there's this great thing that you can look up. Um, it says explore data and you can look up arrival and departures. So what's been cool this year is to look at um, things that have arriven, arrived, arriven, <laughs> arrived, <laughs> have gotten back early. Um, and so hummingbirds might be one of them. That would be a great thing to go and use eBird to search. And it's, it's based on all of our observations. So it becomes stronger the more we enter our observations into it. The one that really surprised me this year um, was American woodcock. And I think um, we had a sighting from down in the Snake Mountain area in February. That's in Addison County. Yeah, in February. So very, very early. And this was another bird then that had arrived back a little bit too early based on the, there was that nice warm spell, and then we got all that snow again. And this was another bird that was showing up in rehabbers' hmm. um, hands because of the cold. So it's kind of interesting when you think about migrants, we can kind of split them into two groups. Um, there are obligate migrants and facultative migrants, and those are big fancy words. But if you think about obligate migrants, those are the ones that are driven by instinct when they want to come, when they're told to come back, their body tells them to come back. And most of those birds are the birds that are our songbirds or shorebirds that are down in South America, right? So like the, the warblers have no idea what the weather's like here. They're just 
just leaving based on what's instinctual. Um, so they come back pretty much the same time every year as clockwork. Um, it's the facultative migrants that are more the short distance migrants um, like Eastern Phoebe or Red Winged Blackbird or American Woodcock that respond to changes in weather as well. And so they're like, ooh, here's a warm spell. Maybe I can get a jump on things. And so I'm going to head out early because then I'm going to get the best breeding territory. I'm going to beat out all those other guys for the best spot. Um, but the risk then becomes, are you too early for food? Which in this case, the woodcock were, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, it just breaks my heart to think about, right? You're a bird that probes the earth for grubs and worms and things like that. And you come and it's like nice and warm, maybe for a day or two. Yeah. And then it gets really cold again. You can't even get your beak in the ground, right? So so those guys are a little bit more at risk when the weather gets wonky, um, when they're migrating. I'm going to make you do your woodcock uh, call because this is one of my favorite birds. We have a yeah. bunch of them out by my house and we hear them Every night, and I love it. And awesome. we, my whole family, we do the the paint. Okay, so it's really good that we're not doing Facebook Live like you did with the Kratz the other day, <laughs> because then you could see the walk too. Which oh, um, I'll have next to do time. the boogie for you that um, next time. But the this is another bird that sounds like a frog. Like we were just talking about frogs that sound like birds. Yeah, this one sounds like a frog. And so you want to go out at dusk where there's a nice open meadow, but near a woodland, um, and you want to listen for something kind of like this. Bing. 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 Oh, you're responding back. I feel I, I, so yeah, good. I, am. I feel validated. <laughs> oh, I'm chosen. And RJ then, and then the, the wings. We have to do right. the wings too. So the, the wings is like a twittering whistle, which I don't know if I can really do well. It's... Yeah, no. I don't got that one. Do you have that one? No, but I don't do it as well as you, but I go... <laughs> there you go. Now, don't get that confused with the snipe, which um, oh, yes, me and snipes. my friends call the woo-woo bird. That's right. For just that's that right. reason. So that's these both of these birds kind of look like shorebirds, but they're like the upland guys um, that we have in grasslands here. So snipe and woodcock. Um, and they both have these aerial displays in order to show off for the females. You're such a gentle corrector, Bridget. Oh, I appreciate well, that. <laughs> Let's go to Jim, who's calling in from Colchester. Hi, Jim. You're on the air. Yes. Hello. Hi. Yes, I just have a question about egrets. And they're not a common bird in Vermont, but uh, last year I was bicycling in the Kingsland Bay area, and I looked and saw an egret, and I lived in Vermont for about 60 years and had never seen one before. And I, I did call up the Audubon Society, mm -hmm. and they... Uh, said that they're an uncommon sighting, and then they mentioned that there were uh, reports of rookeries in uh, eastern Canada. And actually, a couple of months later, I was in the Cornwall area, and I guess there's a fairly extensive one. So what have you, uh, what are your thoughts about seeing these birds more frequently? Yeah, so I, you know, so we there's a bunch of different types of egrets. Um, so we have um, the great egret, and sometimes there have been cattle egrets that have been spotted in Vermont, too. That one's much more rare. Um, I feel like they're popping up a little bit more often here and there. So it's possible that their breeding range is shifting, um, that they're shifting in response to um, their needs for habitat. Um, and then... It, 
the other ones that we can kind of pair up within that same family, right? We have great blue herons, um, little blue herons, um, green herons, um, American bittern as well. Um, I saw one, I just saw a great egret at the north end of Lake Carmi this year. So again, I think when one of the things right now, people are looking for something to be able to do. I think this is a time, especially after some of the protests this weekend, um, the marches for science, where people really want to feel like, how can I contribute? How can I do something? And with birds like this, especially, where we're seeing them kind of pop up in different places, I think of the um, sandhill cranes. Too, I was just going to ask yes, you about them. That yeah. are nesting yeah. in Vermont now. And um, we have some very close to where I live in, in the Fairfield Swamp area. I think we have them in Addison County where I live. As well, yep. These are the birds where we want to kind of keep tabs on them and learn a little bit more about how frequently they are showing up on the landscape. And this is where your sightings contributed to eBird then become part of this greater avian knowledge network that we can then tap into as we're trying to take a look at trends. So to to do eBird, do you have to sign up? Do you have to register? Yeah. So, you know, you create an account much like you would create a Facebook account. It's all password protected. You can also choose not to have your sighting posted to the the public. Um, You can keep them private, which sometimes is really, really good for rare species of birds. We don't want them to be disturbed, especially if we find out that they're nesting. Um, So it is is possible to anonymously um, put your sightings in there as well. But for me, it's a great way to keep track of the birds I have and haven't seen. Um, It's a great way for me to go and research where I, I seem like really super knowledgeable when I go and do my bird walks, especially in other parts of the state. People are like, wow, how did you? Well, I just did my homework, right? (laughs) I just went and I looked up stuff and I found out what was being seen here. So I knew what to look for and where to look for it. And you can seem super magnificent like that too, if you use (laughs) eBird. We're talking with Bridget Butler. While we're talking about these shorebirds, these waders, I'm going to hand you a photo that Nancy emailed us. It's of an American bittern. And Nancy shared this note saying, for the past three years, we've had the pleasure of this little guy's company. He joins us in the spring and remains with us all summer at a little pond in Escutney. We call him Walter, and he's tons of fun to watch. And she posted a photo of him as he was hunting among the reeds, and then another of him in the middle of emitting one of their unique pumperlunk sounding calls. Yes, pumperlunk, um, thunder pumpers, wonka chunker. I got to work on that one, but I know it's in there somewhere. But yeah, so they have this really deep guttural kind of... um, it's almost bell-like too when it when it goes off. It's and it's a little bit clunky. Um, doesn't sound quite bird-like. Um, the other thing that I love about this bird is I'm gazing fondly at these pictures. Uh, it's just the cryptic coloration. When you look at American bittern, gra- you know, Google it, grab your bird book, look at it. Um, but think of it among the reeds and grasses, and then have the bird tip its head way back. And close its eyes and sway as if being blown by the wind like the grasses do in a wetland. Um, And no wonder they're so hard to find. So this (laughs) is quite the treat, especially this time of year. And this is a great time of year, right? They're arriving back. The emergent grasses along the wetland edges haven't really popped yet. So you have a better chance of seeing them. Uh, We have a note from Sally in Wadhams, New York. 
who says, yesterday I observed something I have never seen before, and I wondered if you could comment. I observed a pair of common nuthatches at their nesting hole high up in an old aspen tree. Their chatter alerted me to their presence, and at first I thought they were removing nesting material or bringing some in. However, both individuals had a ball of material in their beaks. And they were using it to sweep every crack and crevice on the tree, both above and below the nesting hole, by several feet. They did this for more than 30 minutes, sweeping their heads from side to side and reorienting their bodies to follow the cracks in the bark. One ball of material seemed to be made from grasses. The other seemed to be made from furry, woolly material. Have you ever seen this behavior? And do you know why they do this? No, that is awesome. What an awesome story. And to be able to sit and watch that and yeah. take it in. Okay. So, right, I think your your gut of um, them cleaning house is uh, a really good theory. Um, it may also be that pair bonding behavior, right? Like you do this, I do this, we form a deeper connection. Um <laughs> The other thing that I'm thinking is I'm wondering if it's a way to glean smaller insects as mm-hmm. well. Like, especially if you, I was, I was hoping she was going to say like spider web like material and maybe that's maybe what that's that the other furry was. Woolly. Right. Um, so maybe it's a way of also gleaning insects. You can bet that I am going to go home and try to figure that one out. So that is a marvelous story and I am just as perplexed, but very excited. All right. Well, while we're talking mysteries, um, George says, Dear Diva, which I just love. (laughs) Dear Diva, can you shed any light on a red start mystery of last summer? A pair built a nest in a lilac bush, disastrously, as it Mm. turned out, close to our front porch. Things started out fine, eggs, babies, etc. But after several days, the babies and then the nest disappeared without a trace. And George says, we have no cat. The next day, a pair of male red starts were fighting all around the yard, rolling around in the driveway, really going at it. They continued to show up in the lilac bush, bring food, and call for the babies for weeks. Sad. That is rough. Um, Dear George, um, I'm glad to hear you have no cats um, outside in your backyard. Um, It's possible that there may have been a cat. So a cat is a good good guess, right? We know that um, cats are definitely um, impacts on birds um, during this time of year when they're um, left outside. So the next thing that I might go to is another type of nest predator, um, and we've got plenty of them. So um, near a household, I think the first thing that I might think about are English um, house sparrows. So these are, I call them the dirty birds. They're like the ones that you see on the city streets. Um, the males have that black chin and um, dark um, brown cap to them. Um, And so that bird definitely competes with other birds for nesting sites and will kind of destroy eggs and destroy nests. They'll Uh, they'll even get rid of the nests? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. And then blue jays, same thing. Um, So... Yeah, I, you've got, oh, and then squirrels, man, especially if you got a red squirrel in the area, those guys are tough. Hmm. Um, and they are egg predators and they're baby predators as well. Um, and I think that 
pair of um, males that you saw competing with one another. Wow, a tussle between red starts. I mean, I that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Um, you know, that, that competition to maybe get a second brood off. And I'm not really sure if red starts will do, um, will fledge two broods in a year if the first one fails. Some birds will do that. Others others won't waste the energy. And they'll basically just leave and go back. <laughs> it's so sad. Mm. They'll just leave and go back to South or Central America because, you know, that time has um, failed for them. So, um, yeah, that's a good one. I would keep an eye out in your yard for things like squirrels, um, the English um, house sparrows, and um, blue jays can also do that. Uh, Kim in Charlotte says it's deafening right now at our house. We have at least five <laughs> white-throated sparrows and two tohi that seem to sing nonstop. <gasps> the other thing we noticed is the woodpeckers have been making a racket, especially the hairy woodpeckers. And we had our first spotting of an evening grosbeak female three days ago. And let's go to Jim, who's calling in from Heinsburg. Hi, Jim. Go right ahead. Hi, uh, Jane. Hi. Hi. Hey. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, two things. First thing is um, spotted uh, pileated woodpecker on my um, suet feeder the other Ooh, day. Wow, cool. And yeah, gorgeous bird. We got Dang. some good pictures. Awesome. Um, but it turned out there was a second one in a nearby tree that came down when the first one was done. Nice. And I'm wondering if, I'm, if, if it might be a nesting pair. Do you know what the coloration on a female is? Yeah. So let me, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip to my book here and I'm just going to double check. I carry my Sibley's um, guide with me pretty much wherever I go because one of the things I love about the larger Sibley's guide is it gives the different plumages for males and females. And it also gives um, plumages for um, mature and immature birds so that you can see the whole range. So right now what I'm looking at is pileated woodpecker and I see the male and female, there's not a huge difference. So it's really, really hard to tell. You're gonna look right at the top of the head between the beak and, and kind of like the crown of the head. So where that spike would really start, on the female, it's more, it's gray. So hmm. instead of that red wrapping all the way down and almost touching the top of the beak where the there's a white stripe, under the eye, a black stripe through the eye, and a little bit of a white eyebrow, that red comes right over and down and meets that white stripe just above the beak on the male. So like a nice full red all the way through. The male also under um, that white stripe under the eye has a little patch of red, so almost like a little cheek patch of red. So the female... Nice triangle of red on top, but it stops before it reaches the bill and no red cheek patch. Thank you for asking that question. I didn't know that myself, and I am so intrigued now to go and pay closer attention to a pileated woodpecker. I love this because these are the things that sometimes we, we're like, oh, that's a woodpecker. That's what that is. And you're like, oh, I'm done looking at that. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a robin. I do this in a lot of my presentations. Take a look at a robin. Slow down and really look at that bird because it has a white eye ring. The gray on its back is dark gray on its head. And then it gets a lighter gray as it hits the nape of the neck and goes down the back. Where does the red stop on the belly? Like, do you know these things? You have this bird in your yard all the time. And Sometimes what I love about having kids right now is that it slows me down. Mm -hmm. I can't do all the birding that I used to do, but I can pay closer attention. I call it slow birding. This is the <laughs> phase that I'm in in my life is slow birding. And so slow birding allows me to kind of focus more on the minute details. So thank you for asking that question because now I have some minute details to pay better attention to. Yeah, that's very cool. I always thought pileated woodpeckers just looked like 
pileated woodpeckers. Yeah. Now I'm curious, too. You can tell the males and females apart. Right on. Thanks for that call, Jim. Let's go to Mike in St. Albans. Hi, Mike. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Good. And I just wanted you know, um, we were uh, over in Champlain, New York, the other day, uh, checking some of my bees, and we saw a golden eagle east of the... Uh, border crossing in uh, Champlain, not the not the interstate crossing, but the next one west. Hmm, very Positive cool. ID. Ah, golden eagle. That's Sweet. pretty neat, Bridget. So, yeah, this bird, and I, I learned this at a really wonderful event that was hosted by the um, Friends of uh, the Missisquoi National Wildlife Refuge. Um, this this past winter, um, where a bunch of birders got together and just told stories. And Charlotte and Hal Bill from up in Franklin County came and talked about their experience with golden eagles. And these guys, they're like magic, Jane. It's like golden eagles come out of the woodwork for them, right? So they seem like really super smart and magnificent when it comes to golden eagles. But once again, it's just that Charlotte and Hal know where to look and when to look. And this is a really great time of year to look for golden eagles. So golden eagles don't breed here but they move through here. So it's like fall and spring migration is a good time to look for them along waterways. And um, so when you think you see a juvenile bald eagle, you want to, right, take a closer look and see if it's a golden eagle. So the the head is going to look a little bit different, more washed out, kind of like a tawny brown color. Um, And uh, they're, they're close to being the same size. So slow down, take a deeper look at that bird. Um, and maybe you have a, a golden eagle on your on your hands. That is so cool. So we got a, a note from um, Chris who says, earlier this spring, we built a screech owl nesting house in hopes of attracting owls to our yard. So far, it doesn't appear to have been visited. Do you think it's too late this year? And if it is too late, we would love not to have a raccoon or possum take up residence. Mm. So should we take the house down? Oh, yeah. So that, okay, so that's a tough one. So yay, putting up nest boxes, right? You know, one of the things that um, we're seeing for uh, birds that need um, dead trees um, or what we call snags um, is that's the thing that a lot of people like to clean up off of their property. So we're kind of taking habitat away from some of those um, cavity nesters. Um, When we don't have those on our property, we can put up nest boxes and screech owls are definitely one of those birds that will use them. So I think, yeah, a little too late in putting the box up. So these guys are going to be kind of pairing um, and looking for a good nesting site a little bit more toward the end of the winter. Um, so, and then which may be when Chris put the the box up, right? They just haven't because because <laughs> it's I, been I just winter for so long. I don't. I want to defend it's been Chris here. for so long. <laughs> um, that, so maybe they haven't discovered it yet. You know, it might take a year or two for them to figure it out. Now, the the thing about taking it down is is that screech owls also depend on cavities to be able to hide in and roost in during the day and to escape the bigger owls at night, all right? So you could be doing a really super thing for that screech owl um, that might be in your neighborhood through the rest of this year um, to by leaving that up. Okay, so don't don't worry about possums. I don't, I don't think so. Okay, all right, good to know. Okay, um, you know, you're talking about snags and, and habitat, and yeah. I want to make sure that we have a little bit of time, Bridget, to talk about a study that you were a part of, and we talked about it on this show, um, a study, longitudinal, 25 years worth of data looking at forest birds in Vermont. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the role you played in that, Bridget, and what you hope that people who have some forest on their land or who are uh, forest managers can do 
to make sure that they are maintaining good bird habitat. We're talking with Bridget Butler today. This is Vermont Edition's Spring Bird Show. And you can always share stories and photos on the Vermont Edition Facebook page or at vpr.net. And Bridget, I mentioned that you were part of uh, this study, forest study, uh, forest bird study done by VINS. And we had Steve uh, Fascio on the program the other day, but I understand that you actually were one of the people who was making observations that made this study work. All of this data, for they've been doing it for 30 years now. Yeah. So this is the, the Vermont Center for Eco Studies, which is a That's little right. different right. than VINS. Um, but so I got involved in this when back when I was still working for Audubon Vermont and I got assigned um, a spot in the Breadloaf Wilderness. And um, so this study, one of the things I find fascinating about this is they used volunteers. Right. And I, I say this a lot. There there can't be a biologist in everybody's backyard. But there are plenty of us with a certain skill set that can be able to contribute to science. And I think this is another great outlet for people right now who are feeling like, God, I need to do something for these things that I am so passionate about. So um, they used volunteers. They had between 70 and 80 volunteers. And they estimated that by using volunteers, it saved them something like $70,000. I mean, that's just incredible. So Right. So we get asked to go, hey, you want to go get up at dawn and go sit out in the middle of the woods, walk to these five different spots and record as many birds as you can. Um, And of course, I said yes. And it was probably one of the things that really grounded me and connected me the most with forest birds and pushed my birding skill levels like and my orienteering skill levels <laughs> right to the edge. Um, so the dawn chorus is, is just magnificent and it's so different than any other time of day. And so you were given a, a survey sheet that basically looks like a bullseye and, and you sat and listened and, and watched and tried to record um, what you were hearing. So birds counter singing like you and I did for the woodcock. Um, birds that, you know, you might have seen nesting, birds that were flying or perched by you. Um, and you're drawing little circles and all kinds of things on this bullseye on each of the five points that you're at. And you have a certain set amount of time to complete those. And you went out, I think it was between two or three times during the breeding season, which is when you really needed to get it done. And this is, I think this is the point that you and I come back to a lot. People call in and they're like, well, this is dropping off in my yard. It's different than last year. And we can't just take like this year compared to last year as, as proof that something is declining or increasing. Or your yard as or your you know, yard. the only yes. point. And so there were points all over the state for this. And they're actually now we're, we're I'm excited because they contacted me after the report and they're like, you want to do something in Franklin County? So now we're trying to find a spot in Franklin County to do this as well. Um, the sad thing is, is yes, birds are in decline. And, and these were all habitats that were fairly undisturbed. Um, and I know from my my set of points deep in the woods um, in the in a protected region. And so we're seeing how um, change in forest habitat is affecting a lot of different species of birds. So part of um, part of my work continues to be trying to reach out to landowners and look at ways that you can improve the health of whatever type of habitat you have and look at it also on a landscape scale. I think this is the big thing that we need to do right now. And in my work, actually, with Cold Hollow to Canada, which is a small forest conservation group in the northern part of Vermont, is we get landowners together 
together who are neighbors. We get landowners together who are part of the habitats that have been identified as high quality forest habitat that is unfragmented. So we find those people and we bring them together and then we bring partners in. We bring Audubon Vermont in um, that does some of this work with songbird habitat assessments. We also look at how we can make forests more resilient in the face of climate change. So there are different management techniques that we can employ to do that to make our forests healthier, which actually sometimes involve cutting. So small patch cuts. I talked to a guy the other day who was like, I have this beautiful forest. It's like 50 acres or more, but I don't hear any birds. Hmm. And I said, what's the understory like? And he said, well, it's all big trees and there's nothing underneath. And I said, well, so that's what that's what the problem is. You don't have a diversity of layer of of different trees and shrubs and plants that provide all of that different type of habitat for songbirds. So sometimes by doing a little tiny patch cut um, and you can work on this with a consulting forester or your county forester will come out and walk your property with you. Um, you can look at ways to tweak that. I also think about folks that might have grasslands and how can we keep grasslands or even shrub scrub areas in that type of state to support. We're seeing declines in grassland birds as well as birds that are insectivores, the ones that rely on on eating insects. And so how can we keep grassland habitats healthy as well? And there's some wonderful programs out there, including the Bobolink Project, where individuals can contribute money that then serve as incentives for landowners to delay mowing, which will help a whole bunch of different bird species, including bobolinks, eastern meadowlarks, upland sandpipers, and short-eared owls even. <laughs> short-eared owls. I know you want to talk about the short-eared owls. I want to hand you another photo oh, here. So photos. I've got two photos. <gasps> and these no. go along with um, a note from Janet in West Unity, New Hampshire, who says, I have been watching a blue jay since December who was mostly red. He still has some red on him. Can we tell if this was from something he ate or is it genetic and i thought what in the world is she talking about but there is pictures there are pictures okay so this is so important right so right our instinct when when we first heard the story without the pictures was like really okay she's got to be seeing like a crossbill or (laughs) a cardinal pine grosbeak (laughs) or something or it's a funky cardinal but no i we're looking at the pictures right now and this is it definitely a blue jay you can see the I mean, the the body shape is blue jay. The beak is blue jay. You even have some blue coloration in it. But then it's got this weird pinky. It's like fruit punch. It's like the bird (laughs) has been soaking in fruit punch. Um, And yes, this can have something to do with diet. But my... I am baffled by this. So here's another one that I would have to go and research and send to some of my um, ornithologist friends for their perspective. I do know, however, that diet of different types of um, berries and, you know, blue jays are omnivores, so they'll eat just about anything, um, will affect their coloration and, and pigmentation. Now, this tends to happen more in birds that do have reds, oranges, or yellows because it kind of parallels with the carotenoids that are in um, berries and such. Uh, And it actually kind of messes them up. It's really weird. There's been some studies out about uh, cedar waxwings who have been eating honeysuckle, which (laughs) we know is an invasive species. Um, The berry moves through the bird's body very quickly, doesn't have a lot of... um, resources in it, like lipids or fats or things um, that provide any benefit to the bird. And actually, it messes with their coloration to the point that some scientists think that it might be decreasing that bird's ability to attract a mate. 
So right, the female, that's the, pr- I know, your yeah. mind just went, what? Wow. Um, so, you know, females. Although look- that would make sense, right? I mean, if the, if that's a bad thing for the bird, it shouldn't attract a mate if we're still, you know, <laughs> pretending we live in Darwin's world, yeah, right? right? The females are attracted to that vibrant color. You eat the right foods, you're you're going to be providing my young with the right type of food. I don't want you bringing crappy berries back right. to the nest <laughs> is really what it is. So this is fascinating. I would, um, I'm going to dig into this a little bit deeper. Good. And Janet, we're going to ask wow. um, if we can post those photos on the Vermont Edition Facebook page. We're going to check in with Janet on that because they are fascinating yeah. and it would be great if everybody can see them. Um, Got a couple minutes left, Bridget, and I oh. I want to ask you about nemesis birds. Okay, and I know you have a life bird that you yeah. would, you you just need to get off your chest. So so birders have like these different groups of birds that they. A life bird is a bird that you've seen for the very first time, right? And you're like, yes. And okay. you might, if you're a birder, you might have a list. You, you know, might all have a list. The, these are the birds that you want to see right. in your lifetime. And then you have nemesis birds, which are the birds that you try to go see, but they don't let you oh, see them. Right? I was, I was imagining something <laughs> far more nefarious. <laughs> the ones that come after you. <laughs> um, so, so for me, for a while, the rusty blackbird was my nemesis bird, and then I finally got to see it this year. Upland sandpiper is my nemesis bird, and I've gone. I think two or three times to this spot up in Highgate where we know they, they hang out and I can just, I can never be there at the right place at the right time to the point where another birder will pull in maybe 10 minutes after I've left and they're like, Oh yeah, it was there. And I just, I'm like, okay, so that's my nemesis bird for this year. And my big life bird story. Um, a lot of folks know that I have this affinity for owls and I love calling like different species of owls. Um, and a lot of folks know that I have three small children right now. So um, this these two weeks, they just turned six, five and four. And so any birding adventure I have is slow birding and it has to be successful, right? So I, when I take them out, I try to make sure I'm setting them up for success. So either we're going to have fun one way or we're actually going to see the bird, which mm-hmm. is ideal. So I got word a couple um, weeks ago that they were seeing short-eared owls up at the Missisquoi National Wildlife Refuge on Tabor Road. And so this is a, um, a a bird that's associated with woodlands and grasslands. And there at the refuge, they have that beautiful Maquam bog and then a set of um, grasslands right outside of the bog. And they come out at dusk and they come to forage um, in the fields and hunt. And they have this incredibly loping kind of butterfly-like flight. It's really, really intense. So we were there. We set the scope up. There were a whole bunch of other birders. I'm worried about my kids, like, be, be good kids and, and, you know, don't scare the owls away. And the bird came out of the bog and straight at us. And that facial disc was just so lit up. It was beautiful and came right toward the, us with the kids and the kids were super quiet because all of a sudden there was the owl and it circled out and perched up and then another one came out and came and flew over the car which was just magnificent um and how did we know about that we knew because folks shared it uh, online and through a bird listserv and then on ebird and other folks got a chance to see it but 
my kids got a killer life bird in, and it was a life bird for me too. It was you hadn't seen. Oh it no, no, had never seen it. Now they're they're down in Addison on Gage Road. Everybody knows that that's a good spot to go for them. But to find it in the place where I live was just so unique and special. And then to find it with my kids was just. Oh, just upped it one more level. Yeah, it's all very cool. And, and, you know, the amazing thing about living in this place here in Vermont is we get to see so many really wonderful we birds. Do. We have a great diversity of birds here. So I encourage folks, get out. Even just that morning cup of coffee, step out in your backyard because it's really amazing this time of year what's moving through. Bridget Butler is the bird diva. By the way, she does consulting. If you're looking for help, can you do like a bird-friendly forest management, bird walks, bird talks? Yeah, so it's not just bird walks, bird talks. Um, You know, I'll do private walks for people. Um, But it's also um, helping you set up um, a monitoring route on your your property. If you want to learn how to monitor birds, I can teach you how to do that. Wrap it into your forest management plan. And I'll also do in-depth bird surveys as well and match you up with whatever you got going on on your property. I'll give you some good tips and techniques to keep those birds on the landscape. We'll have Bridget's uh, website linked at vpr.net. Bridget, thank you. It's so fun as Ah, always. Love it. Thanks, everybody. And that's our show for today. If you have a comment you'd like to share, leave us a note on the Vermont Edition page at vpr.net. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet us at Vermont Edition. And follow Vermont Edition in NPR One for our latest content. Vermont Edition is produced by Rick Singeri, Sam Gale-Rosen, and Meg Malone. Mary Williams directed this program. Our executive producer is Patty Daniels. And our theme music was composed by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. I'm Jane Lindholm. Thanks for listening.